Welcome to our discussion segment on The Quest for Empire. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Strader. Let's get started. Hey, John. How's it going? It is going well. Good. How, how are you doing? Doing all right. Good. Good. It's a new good. year. New year, new me. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't seen any evidence of that yet. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> I have not bought a gun this year so it, far. You know what? So it takes a something. year to become a new person. So it doesn't just there happen overnight. There yeah, we go. Yeah. yeah. So I'm pretty sure you just insulted me in front of all of our listeners. So I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I don't know if insults <laughs> are observations or if observations wow. are insults. So yeah. You've quote, observed, end quote, many things during our discussions about me. So the, Fair point. <laughs> that works Fair out. point. That works out. <laughs> Only one of us is getting is turning 40 this year. So yeah, there's, we, there's won't, we won't name who. <laughs> uh, this was a deep episode for a lot of reasons. Yep. I think that most of our listeners who have heard of this topic probably heard about it in college at some point. Yeah. It's a topic of great passion. And I found, depending on the audience that I'm with, it's either something that people really care about or largely ignore. And There's really no in-between. You can't. Yeah. Most people have an opinion one way or the other. It's, yeah. it's hard. If you know a lot about imperialism, it's hard to not really have an opinion. Yeah. So I wanted to start out slow and then go into this talk a little fast. This is more of a pet peeve than anything else. Is this topic one of the reasons why people refer to Africa when they talk about any nation in yes. Africa? This is one of the reasons why. Okay. Because that bothers me so oh, much. Oh, I know. It's like, well, I'm going to go to Africa. Well, Africa is a continent. Yeah. So like saying, well, but it's kind of like I'm going to Europe. There are a lot of people who say, I'm going to, well, Europe is a continent. You know, what, where are you going? Because you have completely different cultures, different languages, different ethnicities, different everything. I may have kind of derailed your point there. No, no, but, no. But yeah, it, it, we don't usually say, I'm going to Asia. But when I hear people saying, I'm going to Europe, they then identify where they're going. Or that's, they'll say, like, true. I'm going to France or Germany in mm -hmm. Europe, or I'm going to Europe. Yeah, where are you going in Europe, France or Germany? But when I think of Africa, usually it's a church group going there to serve in some capacity, or it's rarely for fun. It's rarely for business. It's well, just, that's changing yeah. now. Thankfully, I, and, it is. Well, and are you... See, now we've got two different questions. Is your question about the nomenclature of Africa versus countries like Egypt, Nigeria, South Africa, Tanzania, things like that? Or is it why Americans go there? What's uh, your question? Uh, the first one. The Okay. Yeah. So is, is imperialism tied to that? Yes. To an extent, because for the basically the entire, for the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, Europeans saw Africa as an extension of Europe, as their colonies. So they would refer to the colony that they were talking about. But just it was this general landmass, this continent of Africa, which we are going to divide up. All right. That's my softball question. Okay. <laughs> so diving in deep now, when you were talking about what motivated imperialism, you cited Darwin's book and went into detail about how that influenced society as a whole during that time period. But you made a statement in the podcast where you talked about how people started to apply what Darwin was saying outside of biology. Mm -hmm. And that stopped me for a moment. Was there any arguments made during this time period to say what he is saying and how we're applying it is actually not outside of biology? Meaning that we're influenced by our surroundings, that as humans, mm -hmm. we're making decisions based off the natural hierarchy and who can survive and who should not, depending on who's strongest and, and not. So would you still say that the people who were acting on this in society were acting outside of what we would consider biology or would, would Is you it what we today would consider or what Darwin considered? I would say both. Because it's not useful really to apply our 
standards and trying to understand and either condemn or support. Right. And that's that's not specifically my question. I think what I'm asking is, is Darwin looked at nature as a whole and said, here's here's this hierarchy mm-hmm. here or or a rule. Right. And did natural he, selection. Right. Being right. The, yeah. That rule. Yes. Did he cut it off specifically for the animals? No. Okay, so no. he did apply and here's, it. To- and here's the, I'm, I'm glad you asked this, because and I there is, Darwin did not just write one book. He wrote another book in the 1860s called The Descent of Man. And that's where he took his own policy of natural selection and applied it to, for him, it was about specifically eugenics. There's a quote that I read to my world history students every year when we get to Darwin, just not, not to biological Darwinism, to social Darwinism, where he literally just compares the breeding of animals to the breeding of humans. And he says, you know, no one who knows anything about breeding domestic animals would allow weaker members of a species to breed. We need to apply this to human beings. So he started the process of applying it to areas outside of biology. And then other social Darwinists took it and ran with it. Okay. So Darwin did not make that distinction between animals and humans. He said this this well, rule applies to everyone. In The Origin of Species, it's specifically about the biological world. Okay. But... His principle of evolutionary biology and of natural selection as basically the, the guiding principle, the god, as, as it were, of Darwinian evolution is then carried over in many of his other writings into other areas. Okay. But Origin of Species, the first book, is specifically about biology. Right. And so the people who read that book yes. and applied it socially, they did not consider it biology and what and how no. they were applying it. No, okay. they, they looked at it because Darwin ends his book saying that this is a universal principle and can be addressed in other or can be applied in other areas. Okay. And I'm going to. But Darwin you know, he had other things going on in his life. He didn't get to The Descent of Man and, and to his other books until the mid-1860s. Other people are already, they take this idea and they run with it as fast as they can. Because in their minds, they have this outcome, this goal that they want. Now, how do I justify it? I can't justify it with the traditional, you know, Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman culture that has dominated Europe, but, you know, we're in the 19th century, that has dominated Europe for the past two millennia. I need something else. There it is. And they take it and they run with it. Okay. Was he right? In the area of differentiation between species, yes. Natural, evo- or natural selection is absolutely observable and is scientifically true. In areas of changes among species, well, that's, that's more debatable. All right. So to be more specific, was he right about in society? Oh, no. Okay. No, you, you're not going to find... <laughs> you were trying to trick me into saying, yes, the, the, the strong should survive and the weak should no, perish. No, no. That may be true in my classroom, <laughs> but no, it's, it's not true in society. Did the people who applied survival of the fittest to society use that as the excuse to do what they did? Yes. Was there a conviction on their part? Did, were they convicted or did they have the true belief that Darwin is right Therefore, we must do this and thereby make it a moral obligation rather than... Sorry, go ahead. Rather than a selfish one. It wasn't specifically about Darwinism. They did not hold Charles Darwin as, you know, we're doing this because of him. They simply took this idea and were like, okay, we've got these basic principles. Let's take it in a slightly different direction. It's very similar to another ideology that arose around the same time. Now, I'm not making a comparison in terms of, in terms of you know, the relative merits of these ideas, but Marxism, the original writings of Karl Marx, 
were then reinterpreted by other people who paid a little bit of homage to, you know, he started these ideas, but we're going to take the Marxist principles in other ways, which is where you get Leninism and you get Stalinism and you get Maoism and you get Bernie Sanders. Whereas with imperialism, they looked back to Charles Darwin, but they didn't cite him as now it's okay to go conquer other countries. They already wanted to conquer other countries. He just gave an added reason, an added impetus to be able to do this. Because throughout the podcast, it's so it, sound- it wasn't a moral obligation okay. by any means. Because it sounded like it kind of was. It sounded like it was a religious obligation, a moral obligation, well, or, so, or those things seemed intermixed with, to your point, the true reason, which was... We want stuff. We want stuff. Yeah. And these other nations are going to take it if we don't. Yeah. So you have different types of imperialism. You did have moral imperialism, this idea of the white man's burden, that we, that our burden, right. because we are, and I hate saying this, please understand, I don't believe this. I think you all know me by this point that I don't actually believe it, but they're saying we as white people have a burden to lift other people, other races out of the darkness of their societies. And so they are speaking in moral language and they are speaking in religious language. We need to convert them from their pagan beliefs to Christianity, Catholicism, Protestantism, Eastern Orthodox didn't matter. Were those beliefs genuine? For a lot of them, yes. I mean, you think of some of the greatest, you know, stories of of Christian missionaries of the late 19th century, some of the very inspirational, whether you're a Christian or not, the stories they tell are amazing. Did they genuinely believe that they were doing the right thing? Yes, I'm sure they did. That, however, doesn't justify the political oppression and the political exploitation of these peoples. Now, the question then becomes, what about the people who blended the two? Because there were some imperialist leaders, especially I'm thinking specifically in the United Kingdom. They said, this is A, our Christian, B, our ethical, and C, our imperial obligation. So they blended all three of them. The Germans, they just wanted free stuff. Not free. They wanted cheap stuff. The French, they just wanted cheap stuff. That's why they went in. There was not this civilizing mission in their colonies. But Britain specifically said it is our moral, it is our ethical, it is our religious responsibility, and it is our imperial privilege. Because we are the white Anglo-Saxon race, because we are the dominant economic and naval power and can project our might farther than anyone else in the world, that gives us a right to do this. Okay, so you would say it would not be fair to blanketly say everyone was trying to give themselves a reason to take lands. That What do you mean? They were trying to give themselves a reason. So I, I've noticed in the last couple of topics that we've talked through, people are great at giving themselves a reason to be evil. <laughs> like they either create an excuse, they say it's for the greater good, they yeah. say these people don't understand the truth, so I have to share it with them, no matter what the cost. Well, it, they're being what we would consider to be evil, remember. Yeah, well, I, yeah. So you're, you're applying modern moral standards, you need to be sure it's either... Re- well, genocide is truth. evil. No, right? I understand, yeah, I understand so, that, so, and I'm not yeah. making a moral relativism yeah. case. I'm saying... You can't make, like I said in the podcast, you can't make a blanket statement that imperialism was evil. No, no, no. But, but And that's what you were doing. So I wanted to just be sure that we're talking okay, about... Okay, well, then I, I'm so not saying it right then. Okay. So, my so point, you're talking about, you know, did they use the justification for the good that imperialism did as also a justification for the evil that it did? Well, were they going there because they wanted stuff and was that inherently yes. good? Or, no, okay, that was not inherently good. Okay, so... It's not good to steal. Yeah. Every major religious group teaches that. So the, the good things that occurred were in spite of the moral evil that was most imperialists' actions. What I'm trying to separate in the question is the distinction between which the nations were 
motivated by what they considered a moral cause okay. versus ones that were like motivated by what we would call now a capitalist cause. Yeah. Like, I want... Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> whoa. A capitalist cause. All right, cause. I retract my comment. Uh, a economical <laughs> cause. They wanted lands, they wanted stuff, right? So okay, I, imperialism <laughs> is inherently anti-capitalist. I know. It is I know. Mu- no, I know, but but our audience may not. Capitalism is the free exchange of goods and services between people of legally equal yeah. status. Mercantilism, an early form of socialism, is what imperialism is. The drawing of wealth, because wealth is a fixed quantity in the world, the drawing of wealth from the colonies into the mother country is inherently not a capitalist system. So while Joe may have unintentionally used the dreaded C word, that's a nice little economics lesson for well, our Well, how do you know it was here. unintentional? Because you said I may have unintentionally, I may have phrased it incorrectly. <laughs> All right. So to your original point, how do you distinguish between the countries that w- want, I just want just, to make they sure just that want stuff you all, versus I, the countries that, that are yeah. making a moral claim? So basically I, it's France, I'm sorry, it's Great Britain and everybody else. Okay. There are people within the colonial offices and within the governments of every European country that established colonies in Africa who wanted a specifically Christian and a civilizing mission to be an element of their colonial programs. But only in Great Britain do we see mass government and social support for that. In France, in Germany, in Italy, uh, in Portugal, in Spain, and in Belgium, especially in Belgium, it was just, we want your resources. That was okay. official government policy. Right. Historically, you you summarize the differences between the protectorates and the annexed areas. Yes. Can you elaborate on the historical implications of both a bit more? Sure. So with the protectorates, it is localized rule, meaning local ethnic groups, local tribal groups, etc. They're ruling their own people. It is not the white man coming in, sweeping away all existing institutions and installing a white person to govern a native population or Mm -hmm. a group of white people. Those local rulers, the best example of this is actually outside of Africa, it's in India. Some people have heard of Maharajas. These are local princes who owe their position and their allegiance to Great Britain. Britain gives them, as I said in the podcast, money, weapons, etc., in exchange for the resources and the labor to collect those resources to send back to the mother country. Now, the long-term implications is, are, there are several. First, you do have a class within society who understands the basics of government, who understands how to effectively govern a society. Now, they're used to doing it with imperial oversight, certainly, but in the colonies that were protectorates, generally speaking, you see a more successful and a less violent transition from colony to independent country. The downside of that is Many times, and again, I have to go outside of Africa for an off-the-top-of-my-head example of this, you have an ethnic minority that has been oppressing the majority under British or, or under imperial rule, and then when the imperial power leaves, the majority, no longer being oppressed, now being equal to the minority, attacks. Belgium and, and the Rwandans is one example, although that was there were more complex areas. The clearest example of this is actually what's going on in Iraq right now. The nation of Iraq is 85% Shia Muslim, 15% Sunni Muslim. The 15% under Saddam Hussein were oppressing the 85% Shia majority. Now, with Saddam gone, Saddam being the analogy of an imperial power, the Shia are oppressing the Sunnis. So those are the, the positives and negatives of a protectorate style. With annexation, you don't have the ethnic tension because everyone is equally treated the same. There's no overclass and underclass. It is white Europeans on top and then everybody else treated equally. 
So there's less ethnic tensions, but the downside is usually there's more economic problems because when the colonial administrators leave, no one has any idea how to govern the country. Best example of this is Zimbabwe. It was the one British colony that I know of in Africa that was governed as an annexed province because Zimbabwe was originally a German colony taken after World War I. The British came in and there was no one who could govern. There were no local princes who had any idea what they were doing. So I said, okay, we'll administer it directly. What do you get? You get Robert Mugabe coming in as president of Zimbabwe afterwards, has no idea how to run a country, immediately massacres tens of thousands of white farmers, inflates his currency to the point where it's something like 102 trillion Zimbabwean dollars equaling one US dollar. I'm not excusing what he did, but part of it is because there was no one around him who knew how to run a country. So it sounds like annexation, when the power ruling the area was gone, it created a vacuum. And so somebody had to fill that, usually with somebody with less experience than those who were, okay. It was the strongest person, not necessarily the best able to govern person involved. Back to the question of imperialism overall and what motivated people Mm -hmm. to do it. Uh, With the knowledge now that there was actually only one nation that actually felt like they had a... a One European. You also have to add the United States, which was involved in the Berlin Conference, but did not have colonies specifically in Africa. We had the same idea of a white man's burden, which book recommendation, all of you should read Mark Twain's, not a book, I'm sorry, his pamphlet called White Man's Burden, which is a parody of the actual argument. And it's about 20 pages. You can find it online. It is spectacular. It's the best anti-imperialist piece of literature I've ever read. So... That's an awesome segue, because my question is specifically, though other nations like France and Germany just wanted stuff, they still held the belief that the people they were conquering, they saw those people as less than themselves. Correct. That they, that not only were they conquerable, but they de- in they some way it. they deserved yeah. it. Right. So what I'm trying to evaluate is like, it's easy to look at this time period and say, okay, that was horrible because it was in some ways, yeah, in some, some absolutely. ways, not so. Understanding that it was bad, it's easy to dismiss this as being specific to this time period. Mm -hmm. Where do we see this type of thought today in modern day? Well, which type of thought? That it's okay to go in and conquer other countries? Or it's okay to classify people as less valuable? Because there's not a whole lot of imperial countries. No, left I, th- today, I think imperialism. China. Yeah, so I, I think the conquering is would be what we consider the final stage. This yeah. is the end result of a line of thinking that has led to this. So, hearing this podcast, I envision the people who who did this. And please share if I'm wrong mm-hmm. or not. You always do. Um, <laughs> So, Gently, yeah. kindly. Uh, because of A, I do B to accomplish C to benefit D. Okay. Okay. So because of A, A would be an ideology or right. a belief or some type of thing, whether it be faith-based, whether it be pure economics, whether it be these people are going to take over a landmass, so I have to, mm-hmm. or because specifically I believe something so strongly that it should be law. When I ask, does this exist today? I don't mean, I'm not talking about the end result. Not of talking us. about C and D. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not talking about we go and we conquer a certain area right. as a result of this. What I see is, or what I'm asking is, is does the train of thought exist to the point of C? Like, I, because of, of A, I do be... Right, people. right. An example is, two years ago, I heard an interview from a guy in town here on the air, Tony Katz. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was talking to somebody from the, the Washington Post. It was actually three years ago. Okay. And he was asking about Trump's chances against Hillary. 
So it was four, four years, years ago. Four years ago. Yeah. Man, time flies. Oh, I know. The conversation that he had with her was very straightforward. He wasn't in, he wasn't inciting ideology. He wasn't talking politics. He said, hey, you're a reporter who's been on the beat on this topic. What are the polls telling you? Mm-hmm. And her attitude back to him, and she hasn't been on a show since, but her attitude back to him was, well, Hillary's going to win. I mean, are you... <laughs> Do, do, you, do you not understand that? Yeah. And Tony picked up on the fact that this person's talking down to me. So he's like, well, I, I'm not asking what you think's going to happen. I'm asking what, what are the, the polls saying? Show? What is the data show? And are, is it a chance mm-hmm. that they're skewed? And she said, and her attitude and was very clear when she said, well, I think the polls speak for themselves. Maybe in Indiana, you don't understand that. And so, wow. So because of a, her ideology and yeah. the, the ideology spells out that people who are not in a specific class, who are not in a mm-hmm. specific So I, state, I get what you're trying to say. Yeah, I just yeah. want to clear, just what's the ideology you're asking me about? Is, is the ideology- It could be either. It could be- it could be well, either, either what? I'm sorry. It could be <laughs> any ideology that would influence someone to oh, say, this person course. is less than myself. Okay. So, so that's I'm what go- we're getting at yeah. is the less than myself. Yes. Because a baby is less than myself, I'm going to kill it in order for me to be able to continue to leave a consequence-free life. Wow. That's, that's exa- what we're talking yeah, about. That's an example. Because, because someone- once you say a life is not a life, once you redefine something, once you define something other than how nature and nature's God have always defined it, then you can redefine it. doesn't matter if it's government or science or anything. Once I can say that that person over there, because of the color of their skin, is not a human being, or once I can say that person because they speak a different language, or because or they're they from a li- different place, yeah, or because, or because they live in Alabama, they, or, or because of where they live. This little person happens to live inside its mother's womb. Therefore, it's not a person, or it's right. not fully human, and my rights to you know live a consequence-free life supersede its right to right. live. Now. Am I talking about universal opposition to abortion? No, I'm not. There are all sorts of caveats, not a place to to get into this. But from a moral perspective, what we're talking about is the redefinition of life. This is not unique to the left. The left and the right both do this in America. It's not unique to this country. Everyone does this. Everyone is bound by their ideologies leading to actions which lead to various consequences. Right. Yeah. So lighter answer or a, a lighter <laughs> example is. Oh, so you already had an answer in your mind. No, you no, just no, 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 no. To- I'm just, I'm just trying to really drive this home because it's easy, as I said, to look at this time period and say that was awful. It's done. It <laughs> had some good, good sides, yeah. bad sides. But the pattern of thought here, we've talked through on several podcasts. Yeah. And the drivers that caused this, both good and bad had an outcome that I think if we could do it all over again, we probably wouldn't have, right? I mean... I hope so. Yeah. So, I, don't, I don't know. I, yeah. I think there are people within our system of government today who, if they thought they could get away with it, would absolutely colonize large portions of this country. Yeah. I think that if Donald Trump could get away with it, I think he would turn California into a protectorate. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> okay. I think if, if he could get away with it, Hillary Clinton would certainly colonize, well, the entire American South. You know, the, the basket of deplorables. That right. She, so that, that was my, my lighter example was that someone from Washington, <laughs> D.C. or New York would look down on someone from Alabama. Or someone from Georgia, because they believe... Well, but, see, you can't... I was I was mostly being facetious. You can't compare imperialism with political differences between Republicans and Democrats, no, I, or, I, or the so-called to. basket of deplorables, yeah, because I, other than a bunch of... Or not a bunch, other than a few radicals within Antifa who are actually willing to use physical violence 
Republicans and Democrats who are currently demonizing each other on Twitter and on Fox News and CNN, they don't actually believe they're more human than anybody else. Hillary Clinton doesn't believe that they're less human. She just thinks they're stupid. She thinks that you and I, being the basket of deplorables, were stupid in 2016 to vote for. That's completely different from imperialism. If you want modern interpretations of imperialism, go to places in the world where they are actually killing people because they're not human. I'm not, go to the Middle East. I'm, I'm not making a direct comparison. And go to Middle yeah, East and Planned Parenthood. I'm, I'm, I'm making a comparison to the line of thought that leads to this outcome. It leads to the outcome of somebody I, saying... See, I, I'm not going to say that, I'm not going to agree with you that calling someone a basket of deplorables leads inevitably to colonization and concentration camps. So I, I don't know that it would lead to those specific outcomes, but when you say that somebody's a basket of deplorables, or if you're a conservative and you say that this group of people, because they believe something different than me... Those elites or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. The, you automatically, on some level, dehumanize them. I disagree. I don't think you're dehumanizing them. You're otherizing them, but that's completely different. So I you, truly believe Hillary Clinton does not think that you and I are less human. You don't believe that the ideology that she subscribes to says, because these people are stupid, they do not have the capacity to make their own decisions for themselves. Therefore, we need to. Well, yeah, but that's, that's different from... You from, don't think that that's dehumanizing on. on some level? No. You don't? No. You don't think that dehumanizing human... to the point where you think it's okay to put them in camps and kill them and the, and exploit the camps them for slave is the end labor? Result. No, 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 no. No, the end result is completely different. The end result for the Belgians and for the British and for the Germans in their parts of Southern Africa were we are going to exploit these people to the point where they will die. I don't think there is a single Democrat, and I can't believe you put me in the position of defending the Democratic Party. <laughs> I don't think there is a single major figure within the Democratic Party who would like to see red staters be exploited to the point of death. But that's not where it starts. That's, n that n that's but, never but where it starts. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not willing to draw the line from basket of the deplorables to we're going to run your life for you in, in a democratic socialist vision of America and to take the line further to any kind of physical violence. Did the uh, nations that colonized Africa go in with the idea that we were going to, that we were going to commit mass genocide? Some was, did, yes. Okay. What, the, well, okay, what? no, the, the goal was not mass genocide. Okay. Mass, mass genocide was B, not C. C was, we are going to get the resources that we need to fuel our economies, to continue to grow right. our own prestige. I agree prestige. with that, totally. I, what, so what B I'm, was the genocide. And the genocide is because of the ideologies and the principles of they are not human for X, Y, and Z. What I'm trying to say is, is I'm not saying that modern political parties or ideologies in our society now are the same exact thing. I'm trying to say that the line of thought could be the same exact thing at some okay. point. Well, if and, allowed and this to is this is the point where we agree to disagree and we yeah. move on because we've I think we both articulated our cases pretty clearly and we can let the audience decide. Yeah. I could be okay, maybe you know. I'll, so I'll a great give you book. A, I'll give you a one percent chance. Okay, so of a great the Democratic book on Party this. turning into the Nazi Party, but yeah. I don't think it's going to happen. No, I don't think. It it can either, but the, what I'm so uh, I'm trying to think. What's of the it. book? So it's called Good Men. I don't know if you've I've heard read of it. it. Yeah, I haven't okay. read it. So Good Men is about these upstanding men. I think it was in Poland who were police officers. Yeah, and so I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. So they didn't start out with the idea that we're going to exterminate people, but they started to adhere to an ideology that slowly corrupted them to the point where they said, "Okay, given the society that we're in and the societal factors that allow us to take this all the way mm -hmm. to its end, which is we're killing people 
they did that. And I'm not saying, I don't think our society allows that. I, th I think that there's boundaries here. There's laws. There's other things out that would actually hinder that. But I guess the danger that I wanted to bring up is that this outcome was started by if A, I do, or because yeah. of A, I do B, yeah, and so on. So I think going back to how you ended the podcast about the choices that we make, what are those choices that we make at the beginning of that statement? Because of A, I do what? Or I don't do what? Mm -hmm. So what is going to influence what I believe is that is my if the actions that I think I need to take, should those change what I think to be right because those outcomes are abhorrent or those actions are abhorrent? Well, I think the, the cautionary tale really is tied into what we talked about in, I think it was the last podcast before the, before the January break. It's what's the ideology that you subscribe to? Because Darwinism and, and a lot of that is not, it's, it, it didn't come from the French Revolution and the Enlightenment, but it follows that line of thought, which is there is no higher order within society than government. Whereas the ideology of the American Revolution is there is something beyond this world that is setting the boundaries for which we can and cannot act. Mm -hmm. So if your ideology is some form of, and it doesn't have to be religious, if your ideology understands that there are boundaries across which you may not cross, regardless of your race, your skin color, your gender, your, your wealth, your whatever, then... B, C, and D are less likely to lead to any kind of right. danger. Yes. Whereas if your ideology is, I'm in charge, and I decide what the boundaries are, you're more likely to see B, C, and D. Right. On the topic of the equation, I'll call it, that we've okay. talked through, like, because of A, I do B to... Yeah. Okay, so on. One of the things that we talked about in a past podcast was the idea of what you're trying to attain being abstract or concrete. Right. Do you think that that is a unique qualifier when you're thinking through the actions or bringing it back to this podcast, when the actions were taken to conquer certain areas of Africa, mm -hmm. do you see as uh, nations that did it having more abstract reasons or more concrete reasons? They were pretty concrete. Okay. They were just concretely So, so Great Britain's, Great Britain's moral, what, what I would, Great what I would call it. Great Britain is the outlier because most of these countries were very intent on, we're just going to take stuff. And so was Great Britain. I don't want to make it sound like Britain was somehow like <laughs> better at, yeah. at, they were more effective at governing their colonies. And that might have been because of their moral language that they used. I don't know. But Britain was not, was not any more moral in terms of what they did. They used more moral language. They used more effective moral language. That's a better yeah. way to put it, rather than saying more, 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 more 50 times. This time period's influence on modern day. Obviously, this was a turning point in history, and you explained why. In terms of the long-term effect, you talked about some of the effects that we're still seeing now mm -hmm. from this. We've talked about the fact that when power was pulled out of certain, certain areas, it created a vacuum, thereby giving people an opportunity who didn't have any experience leading to take control of everything. Do you see a way that this could remedy itself? Based on your, from a historical perspective, <laughs> from a his, yeah. from not historical using modern day morals or any yeah, yeah, yeah. of that. Like no, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. It's one I should have anticipated and been thinking about. Because um, it seems to be getting worse depending on what part of the continent you're on. Yeah, I mean, in certain countries it is, but some countries are improving in, in recent years. Uh, ironically, thanks to China. China is really investing heavily in Africa right now and building up their infrastructure and, and helping these countries recover from European imperialism. Ironically, because they want to exploit I was the region. Be my question. Yeah, yeah it was, it was because my question. they want to exploit it the same the same way. Yeah, the Chinese are, are portrayed as these do-gooders in Africa, and they are not. But how? 
Are you asking how the Europeans can kind of help out? And, I'm asking, or, so, or how the people who live in these people African who countries, live in the countries. Okay. So, because there's there, the answer is slightly different. So, from a historical perspective, first and foremost, you need a governing class. And that does not mean a superior class or anything like that, but just a group of citizens who know how to effectively govern a country and who can set aside their personal ambitions. Say what you want about Nelson Mandela, because he, you know, he, he did amazing work, but at the same time, some of his stuff, especially early on in his career, but he was the prime example of a South African statesman. He did what everything he did was for his outcome, for his country. Some things he did were wrong, morally speaking, but he set aside his personal ambitions and he did what was best for his country. In a lot of states in Africa, specifically in sub-Saharan Africa, you don't have a governing class capable of doing that. Now, I'm not making any judgments as to why, but Africa needs that, sorry, not Africa, the countries within Africa, see, I just did it, they need groups of people who can be statesmen and stateswomen because... There is so much rampant corruption in so many African countries, it's impossible for them to truly progress towards some level of economic, general economic prosperity. There are plenty Mm. of people in Africa who are fantastically rich, but only a few is there a general level of prosperity. Yeah. So they need that. They also need infrastructure. And this is one thing that I believe first world countries can help with. Debt relief and all of this is kind of controversial, and I don't necessarily have an opinion on policies towards Africa, but so many relief programs and the goods and services they provide don't reach their intended targets because of a lack of infrastructure. Because you're you're going through a very simple desert road, if you're in Saharan Africa, with no security and no road signs, you get lost or there are, you know, brigands and thieves and things like that. Or you're going through jungles or you're going through swamps or, or across the Serengeti, whatever it is. If Africa had a series of highways, and I mean the entire continent, I'm not talking about individual countries, if Africa was able to build, or if others, other countries would help them build a national highway system like what we have, an international highway system, which is what it would be there, where you could actually get products from the point of entry, whether it's an airport or a seaport, to the people who need the help. That would be a tremendous way to help or to, to try to solve some of the economic and the political problems hmm. within Africa. But I, no one talks about that. Yeah. So many people go over there and like, we're going to teach people how to dig wells. We're going to teach people how to farm. We're going to teach people. It's, it's always with the uh, assumption to. Yeah. And just just to go off on a little tangent on that. It's always with the assumption that they can't do anything else. Let's let's teach yeah. let's teach them. And it's how not to like do they've this. been doing that. They've been doing that for ten thousand years. It's just like you know what we need. But no, to do? we need we need Western educated white people to come in and teach them how to build a well. Yeah, it's just like why don't you why, why don't we go in and like share technology and and give them opportunity? But the reason so many people involved in in wanting to help, good intentions and all of that, but they want to help out in ways that are glamorous so that they can then use that. But as they can make a video and images. put it on Facebook, exactly. Yeah, and it's not actually doing a blanking thing to help them build roads I, across that continent. Continent. They need roads. They need electricity. Less than 25% of that continent has easy access to electricity and affordable access to electricity. Yeah. The hysteria surrounding the climate crisis is desperately hampering Africa's ability to get past the legacy of imperialism. Hmm. And who is that being imposed on them by? White Europeans. Yeah. 
It's a new form of imperialism. Yeah. We have already achieved the level of equality or the level of economic prosperity. You can't achieve it because you'll destroy the planet. I had expected you to say <laughs> something else, too. I had expected you to talk about what they need is more capitalism. Not to invoke that word no, again. I'm not, not going to get into a, be, a political well, well, thing. Well, it's interesting because a few years ago, I say a few years, probably like eight years ago, Bono actually was giving a speech about all of his work that he's done on that mm-hmm. continent, raising billions and billions to help aid and feed people. And he was asked, quite frankly, like, how has that gone? And he was really discouraged. Mm -hmm. He said, well, it hasn't really done much. Or it has saved people, yeah. but to what end? What What's the it's end here? It's helped in the short run. Well, and what he said was, and he said, this is going to shock a lot of you because I'm this rock star, but what we need there is capitalism. Yeah. Because once you have that, once you have people able to be seeking their own economic means, there's going to be a system of security that is automatically created by which people can then sustain those. Well, but how do you do that until you have the political institutions that can sustain capitalism? And how do you have it unless you have the infrastructure that can provide the goods and services people need to exchange? It's like the ch- what so, should come first, right? I don't know. Well, I mean, what we have in, in many African countries right now is rampant capitalism, but it is capitalism without any ability to provide the economic resources necessary for people to lift themselves out of poverty. Capitalism in an area of equal access and equal opportunity to market resources has been the greatest creator of wealth and the greatest leveler of the playing field in all of human history. But in societies which are still emerging, many of them are from the colonial shackles. You don't have equal access to market resources and therefore, you know, a so-called free market is free for the people who live in the big cities and they're doing great, but the people who live in the countryside they're starving. And the people who live in the countryside who try and make it into the cities, sorry, we don't want you here. We've got enough people as Mm. it is. And they are shut out of this free market system. You have to have equal opportunities and equal access. So I go back to infrastructure. The national highway system here in the United States was the greatest asset that American capitalism has created. What's to stop one group from taking control of a certain expanse of highway? And that's say, why you need statesmen. You, uh, you yeah, also okay. have to have the political leaders okay. who can then govern the country effectively and say, listen, if you try and take over that section of road, because that does happen yeah. in parts of Africa, sorry, in parts of African countries, you have to have people saying, you know, you take over that, the, the army's going to come in and you're not going to be able to bribe the army because it is a national army. It's not a tribal army. It's not a this political group army or that political group yeah. army. And they're going to kill you if you don't provide or if you don't allow everyone equal access. Okay. All right. So final question. Okay. At the end of the podcast, you talk about how we objectively should look at this time period, not mm-hmm. just this one, but all of history. Yeah. As I said at the beginning, when I talk to people about this, when I hear about this, it's usually one side is obsessed with it to the point of they see it everywhere. And the other side doesn't really talk about it a whole, whole lot. How would you it's su- embarrassing. Yeah. How would you suggest to our audience, not tell them how to read about mm-hmm. this, but what are some suggestions you would give to people who are interested in this time period? And what are some ways to, I don't know, how to, like, how to see it, how to, yeah. how to interpret it's, it? It's the same advice as with every period, with every, with every uh, awkward period in your history. If you are a German and you're, you're hearing about this, there are plenty of awkward periods in your history. Read about these events dispassionately. If you are French and you are reading about these periods or other awkward periods in your history, get the facts. Same thing with Americans. We have plenty of awkward moments, of tragic moments in our own history. We need to read about them. We need to acknowledge that these things have happened. But, and this is the big, the big caveat, and I say it in the podcast. I think I've said it in this one. I know I've said it in others in the past. 
don't condemn societies today for the crimes of the past. You cannot hold someone responsible for things that their ancestors did. One, because they weren't around to atone for it. They can't atone for it. Two, because hindsight is always twenty twenty. The people at the time may not have had all of the insight that you have. So don't just immediately assume that the people today are responsible for events that have happened in the past. I think so much of why a lot of talking specifically about America, because America has its own imperial past that we didn't really cover in this one because it was less impactful worldwide. And this is a, a season on turning points in global history. If, of course, if you talk to someone in the Philippines, it's very influential in their history. But when we read about our own imperial period, or when we read about slavery, or when we read about treatment of Native Americans, we need to be able to recognize historical facts and historical truth while at the same time recognizing that America has changed since then. People in Germany need to understand, need to read about the history of the 1930s and 1940s and the Second World War, to recognize what that country did, and then to thank God, or whoever they pray to or to no one, they need to be very grateful that they have progressed. I don't mean you don't condemn people for what they did at the time. I'm not saying that, oh, the Nazis, they just didn't understand what they were doing when they murdered you know, 11 million people. I'm saying don't condemn Germans today. If you look at, you know, the imperial period of the 1880s, 1890s, yes, condemn men like Cecil Rhodes, but don't say Britain today is evil because of what happened a century ago. Right. That's another part of the lesson that we need to learn. History teaches us many things. And one of the things it teaches is how far we have come, how far we have progressed going forward. I thank God that America in 2020 does not have slavery does not have institutionalized, legally sanctioned racism. Whatever you may think about race relations in this country, it has progressed tremendously from, even from 1964, but certainly from 1860. History teaches us, you know, many lessons, and one of them is, as I said, how, how we have progressed and how much better our society is now. So when you read about European imperialism, when you read about any period in history that is tragic, and you should read about these periods, don't just read about the periods that make you happy. Don't just learn about, learn the history that you think is really, really cool. So many of my students, they don't care about anything other than, you know, the history. You know, the weapons wonks who are like, oh, I want to talk about, you know, I want to talk about the world wars. And, okay, yeah, we can talk about the world wars. There's tragedy in there as well. But let's, let's also learn about other aspects of history. Oh, that's boring. Well, there are still lessons in there. Read about history. Learn the lessons of it and recognize that we can all, we all tend to think, you know, with hindsight that we know what's best. Not always the case. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of The Quest for Empire. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. Thanks, and see you next week.